and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and we sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. We're recording today from the Museum Building at Trinity College Dublin. We've just had a fantastic conversation with Professor Brian Caulfield, a professor of transport here at Trinity, and we covered a huge amount of ground, from autonomous vehicles to electric vehicles, to low emission zones, to gilets jaunes, to protest, politics, and all in between. It was a great, deep conversation covering an awful lot of very important ground, and it was one you won't want to miss. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favour, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. Yeah, so th thank you so much for inviting us in here. It's a you know, fantastic, wonderful building, and it's great to be back on campus again. Just realized it was 24 years since I've graduated from here. Good grief. It's far <laughs> too long to come back, but you're more than welcome back. Thank you very much. So you're a professor of transport here at, uh, at Trinity, and we're here to dig into the puzzle of decarbonizing the, the transport system. So let's, let's talk about climate. <laughs> Let's talk about climate. You'll probably see it getting darker outside because this conversation could take a while. <laughs> That's fair. Your, your PhD is in engineering. It is, yes. Yep. Um, and when people think about um, engineers, uh, more think uh, more kind of, you know, micro, like you're building bridges and you're, 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 you're building cars as opposed to, to transport systems. Um, how did you get into the, the more kind of the, the bigger picture stuff? Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do. Well, I suppose the bigger picture stuff kind of um, happened during my PhD, where I was looking at public transport systems, how to make them more efficient. And then since then, I've the majority of what I teach and what I research is on large-scale cities, how we decarbonize them, how we make them more sustainable, more livable, more cleaner air, healthier, all of these types of things. Um, so I use large data sources to try and prove different hypotheses um, around changing the systems. Um, and it's great because I get to play with lots of data and look at new public transport systems, which is, which is all very interesting. And being able to do that then enables me to, you know, spread that love of what I do to the students that are here in this building, uh, also PhD students. And then I've been successful in funding as well to, to be able to kind of push forward the science in the area. Great. And you also have um, another qualification in economics. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, how do they? How do the the kind of PhD in engineering and the economics fit together and the, the work you do? The thing about transportation is it's massively interdisciplinary. Um, uh, I work with people in here in engineering, economists, geographers, psychologists, um, people in computer science, um, historians, everybody. You know, because transport's all pervasive. Like you know, it's around us all the time, and. The thing about it is to reach our climate goals in transport is it's going to be really difficult first of all but there's not one discipline that has the answer if we had the answer we wouldn't be staring at the the abyss that we're currently staring at in terms of transport emissions so one last kind of personal question um how do you get about you can you tell us about your own personal transport system so today it was the 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 tram i got the lewis um in here today um I generally get the Lewis when I'm coming in here to work. Uh, I have an electric car at home. Um, I live in a terraced house, um, which means that I can charge the car there, so that comes up with difficulties, but the, I do use the car. I've got three dogs. Um, it's, <laughs> they're not welcome on the Lewis. Um, uh, there's very few bikes I would bring them on, so it, it, it's mainly the Lewis and the car would be how I would get around. Okay, perfect. So um, we're going to talk about kind of your big, big policy issues. We're going to talk about policy. We're going to talk about autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles. Uh, but to start with, uh, put it all into context. So how big an issue are transport emissions? So in Ireland, we're about 20% of our overall um, emissions come from transport. Um, other countries, it's, it's, it's considerably higher. In France, they, they've got higher um, levels of emissions from transport. But in Ireland, it's 20%. And it's been kind of stable at that for, for quite some time. Um, so th th there's that 20% chunk. But there's also the fact that in Ireland, recent data shows that 69% of all trips are made by a private car. And that was 2022 data. Data from the, the same sample in 2011, uh, sorry, 2012, showed that it was 70%. So in a decade, we've reduced the mode share of car by 1%. To 2030, 
the kind of things that we need to do in order to get to a 50% reduction in, in emissions are massive. Um, by that deadline, we won't, be, we won't have tunneling machines under Trinity building the metro. We won't have you know, light rail um, um, in, in operation. Um, so it's mainly going to be bus. So we kind of have to decarbonize our current system by 50% by the end of the decade without you know, new shiny big public transport options. And government has a number of ways in which they've set out to do that. Um, one of them is by electrifying pretty much everything. Um, and one of the big targets, one that I, I don't really sit on the fence on, is um, a million electric vehicles by the end of the decade. And um, how do academics break down the transport sector and, how, and why is it important to be kind of getting into the kind of granularity of the different types? So in the, the big multimodal models that I would use, we look at how people would travel by different modes and what persuades them to do, use different modes of transport, all of that type of thing. Um, um, in terms of the granularity then, people tend to be on a couple of sides of it. One is that they're doing better planning, so they're doing better transport modelling, better land use planning, um, better planning for well-being in neighbourhoods and all of that type of thing. They tend to be on the kind of either the shift side, which is trying to get people to use more sustainable modes of transport, um, and that's using psychology, um, behavioural economics, um, just providing better public transport options and cycling and walking. And then the last one is the improved side, um, and that's generally electrify as many cars as we possibly can, trucks, hydrogen, um, biodiesel, all of those types of things. So it's those are the three kind of pies in which people tend to sit in uh, when it comes to uh, comes to transportation. Um, all of them together would get the solution. There is no silver bullet um, across any of the three of them, so that makes it makes it difficult, but all of them need to be looked at at the same time and at the same pace. Okay, and uh, I know you're a specialist in, in kind of, you know, trans transport particularly, kind of roads and um, trans transport in Ireland, um, but could you put it in the context of overall tran transportation emissions, including uh, aviation, shipping? Um, so I suppose the work that I do doesn't really look at aviation or doesn't really look at maritime shipping. Um, uh, currently, Irish government policy is that they're outside of the, the, the carbon budgets that we currently have. I know when they are taken into account and when Ireland does its emissions um, uh, accounting essentially, and if you do take into account aviation, we get lumbered with a fairly big airline um, and then that impacts upon um, our overall emissions. Um, in terms of aviation, um, it's not something that I've done a hell of a lot of research on. Um, but there are people across the campus here in Trinity that are looking at ways of making it more sustainable um, and making it, you know, greener. Um, worries about greenwashing in some cases that might happen in that and uh, how the industry is going to adapt. Um, perhaps the demand is too high um, and that's one of the things that, 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 that maybe is in the aviation sector. I, I'd heard there recently that the number of passengers allowed to go through the airport and it's what, just um, mid-October now, um, that we're already almost near the annual amount. So there's huge demand. It's a latent demand from COVID. Obviously, people want to get moving around again. Um, but we do need research efforts in that space to try and make it more sustainable because we are a globally interconnected planet and we need to be able to move around more sustainably. For sure. Okay. And um, if we're, like, for the purpose of the conversation, trying to understand how the sector can, can evolve, how, how it can tr transform. But to do that, we need to understand um, where the holding all things, other things equal, you know, basis would be. If if we make no additional policy changes, um, what what is our trajectory? So if we do nothing, um, uh, our emissions this year in, in Ireland grew by six percent. So if we do nothing, everything stays as it is. It will continue to increase. Our populations are increasing right across the planet. If we do nothing, that's what's going to happen, and it's going to increase. Um, and it is, it's going to be really difficult to bring down. Um, and I suppose where we're sitting now in 2023, we've done nothing for decades, and now it's really difficult to change. And we're asking for a lifetime of change in seven years, um, which is going to be divisive. And we've seen that recently in the UK, how divisive it can be. It's, 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 it's a massively difficult challenge, not only in transport, all the other sectors as well, it will be very difficult. Mm. And in transport itself, in the last seven years, we have done some stuff, at least for two of those years. There was a, a, a massive natural experiment where the transport system just got shut down. Well, what, what kind of lessons have you, you learned from COVID? 
Uh, what have we learned from COVID? I think we've learned a lot of good things. Um, research that we, I've led here in Trinity, we've looked at um, the emissions that have been saved by people working from home. Uh, we looked at changes in behaviour, more flexible working, people spreading the, their work week, working on different days of the week, um, and that all helps. See, the thing is with the transport system, we plan for a, a morning peak, which is when the traffic is at its worst, and then an evening peak. Um, but if we can spread those peaks, we can you know, deal with the, the demand that, that happens. And that's what I suppose spreading people's working weeks has been able to do. Um, there's still a large majority of people that work from home. I work from home a number of days a week and other people across the campus do the same. I think what the important thing now to try and understand is, is that really reducing emissions? Um, are the work trips, the commutes, what's happening there? Work that we did in a national survey showed that, yes, people wanted to continue to work from home. And what they were going to start to do then was move away from the cities because we have a transport crisis and a housing crisis. Um, so they were moving further away from the cities. So they were swapping out their maybe five, six kilometre commute for maybe a 20, 30 kilometre commute. So the longer commute happening one or two days a week. So sprawl and all of the other things are starting to happen because of it. So it's one of the unintended consequences, I think, of this. Um, that we're starting to see, and not just in Ireland, in other countries across the world, they're seeing that kind of migration away from the cities. Um, San Francisco is a great case in point where the, the price of properties have gone up to the roof and um, working from home has meant that it's hollowed out the city centre. Um, so those are the kind of the negative impacts um, that we've seen. But even during the height of the, the, the pandemic, um, the emissions from transport in Ireland didn't fall by much because, you know, freight was still happening, people were still moving around. Um, it was just the commute that was gone. And the commute is probably only about 20 to 25% of all of the trips we make. So it's, again, beware of silver bullets. Um, that also brings up a kind of a the, the wider question of like climate's only one part of the, the transport picture. Um, there's various other uh, demographic and even even kind of biodiversity issues involved mm -hmm. with, with the urban sprawl. Could you talk a little bit about be, the importance of transport beyond this mere climate, but within a sustainability sphere? Sure, of course. If if, if climate, let's park that to the side and assume that you know a pending apocalypse isn't going to happen. Um, we think about transport. We think about transport regardless if it's an electric car, a hydrogen car, petrol, diesel, Fred Flintstone's car. Um, they all take up space and the space that they take up causes congestion. Um, and that's one of the negative economic impacts that people are, are spending a lot of time in their, their, their vehicles and that has a negative economic impact. So that's one of them, the congestion side alone. So that's one of the reasons why we should be building all the public transport we possibly can. Um, because our cities don't get any bigger. Um, our cars do, but our cities don't. The other one is air quality, um, that you know, our cities right across the world, and there was recent research done here in Ireland that shows we breach a lot of the World Health Organization levels for particulate matter, for, for NOx, all of these different values. And then that is having a health impact upon people. Um, so that's another reason. And if it were, from my perspective, I think that's probably the best reason because to, to try and improve the transport sector because people understand climate change is happening. Um, it's so big and it's so, it, it puts people under a lot of stress, I think. Um, it's so big that they can't comprehend it and they don't know how to really do something about it. But if you paint the picture around health and well-being and all the kind of things I was just talking about, people go, yeah, I want cleaner air. I want, you know, more space. I want to be safer on my roads. If there's good public transport, I will use it. Um, so I think that's the argument to start to have. And I was talking yesterday to people from Carlow um, uh, County Council, and they were talking about a new bus service that they had. They'd never had a town bus service before. And they were getting over 1,500 passengers a day on this bus service. So it was... If you give people good alternatives, they will take them. Um, and then on top of all of that, then you've got the climate, um, the climate and emissions and, and how we tackle that. Um, but they're all kind of, that's why I said at the start, it's not just engineers or economists, it's everybody to make uh, the whole system work much better. For sure, and it's quite easy for us to be sitting in that like Dublin city centre here and be very kind of focused in on um, the issues that are involved around like really congestion and pollution, pollution in Dublin. But there's very different issues if you get out of the, you know, the major urban populations. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of the urban rural divide? And there, there, there is a massive urban rural divide in Ireland when it comes to transport. And I've heard people recently say, though, you shouldn't frame it as that, but like you can't not. Um, 
In Dublin, 98% of people are within a 15-minute walk of a shop. And then when you go to rural Ireland, that's about 38% of people. So there is a divide. Um, the other thing about the divide is, is that, you know, we are providing lots more public transport into the into rural parts of Ireland. There's certain parts of, of rural Ireland that it will never be viable to provide a bus service, three bus services an hour, because there's so few people there. And those are the places that, for, from, from my perspective, that's where we should be pushing electric vehicles, shared vehicles as much as possible. They're the, the, the best alternative. Whereas in a city like here, where we are in Dublin, pushing electric vehicles when, you know, if you listen closely, you can probably hear the Lewis going in the background or the Dart. Um, why would we be putting all our eggs in, you know, the cities? And that's what the data shows. Um, the majority of electric vehicles are in Dublin or they're in Cork. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a bus that's used for three or four people is not going to be saving you anything on emissions. It'll be, be doing more harm than good, surely. Exactly, and they're more likely to be diesel buses, and yeah, they're 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 going to be going against the, what we need to do. Um, those buses, obviously, hopefully, will be electric in the future. Um, but again, that's slow. We have a, there's a great example in Athlone where there's a fully um, electric bus fleet in, in in that town now. We have about 20 Athlones in Ireland, and that needs to be everywhere. Okay, so um, this is you know, great background, great great context. Can you paint us a picture of what a sustainable future, fairly low transport uh, system in Ireland might look like? I suppose in the cities, um, say here in Dublin, um, it would be that we would deliver all the light rail and metro projects that, we, that, that we're hoping to do. Um, it would be that the car, there may not be a congestion charge, but there would be so little space for the car to move around, it would happen by proxy. Um, and that there would be much more space for people and cyclists and all of that type of thing would happen in the city. city would be cleaner, um, we would put more space um, for, for greening our city. Our city is going to get warmer. This was the coldest summer we're ever going to experience in our lifetimes. Um, so we need more space for green. That's what it'll probably look like in the urban areas and the same in Cork and Waterford and Limerick and Galway. More you know, over-provide public transport is what I think. You know, in Cork, there's a debate whether or not, well, is there enough people over-provide? We over-provide in roads, so let's do the same for public transport. In rural Ireland, um, it's a lot more difficult. Um, almost the same amount of people that live in the Greater Dublin area live in rural Ireland, um, so how we provide mobility for them is going to be difficult. Um, I think electric cars will do a lot of the heavy lifting there. And then where possible, shared electric cars or using, using technology to connect people. We talk a lot about smart cities and they're great um, and sensors and all the rest, that's fantastic. I think technology may have a bigger role to play in rural Ireland when we're connecting people with scarce resources, specifically around electric cars and given how expensive they are and the prices of them aren't coming down um, from what I can see. So we're talking about mainly, so far we've talked mainly about kind of supply side uh, changes here where you're providing more more options, provided, provided, providing more transport. Um, that's one half, a very important half, half of the equation. What's the other half is demand side. How do we use kind of carrots and sticks and push push and pulls to change the, the habits? And habits that have built up over a lifetime. And to, to put it in context about how difficult I think it is, is that people choose where they work and where they live probably two or three times in their, their lifetime, I know the majority of people, let's say, and that commute and they're stuck into wherever they are based upon where they live versus where they work. Um, then in terms of the sticks, they're, they're, they're obvious. Um, look at London, it's a congestion charge or an ultra low emission zone. Those are the types of things that we need to look at. Um, there was work done recently that showed um, they looked at free public transport and the government modelled it to see what would happen if it was free. It turned out that people wouldn't use it, even if it was free, um, that it wasn't good enough yet. It's going to be very difficult to get people away from their cars um, because they're, they're so much more efficient than, uh, in terms of time um, than, than using public transport, walking or cycling. And that's where sticks will have to come in. Um, there's a lot of debate about how good public transport needs to be first before you do that. We could debate that for decades. I'm pretty sure in London, before the congestion charge came in, people said public transport's not good enough. And it was brought in. It changed that city. Um, I think that as well, like if you look at, say, Paris, again, you know, look at the, the, the power that directly elected mayor has had there, and she's completely changed that city too. So there will need to be what may seem like draconian measures in some cases when the transport's 
good transports put in place to get people away from 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 their cars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I think with uh, was there at the time of the in London at the time of the uh, congestion road being brought in, there was practically riots in the streets before it happened. Within a month, it was it was just it was normalised, and everybody accepted it, and everybody accepted this is actually much better. It's a much better system. We can move around, we can get around quicker on our on our buses or public transport. Is is was was up to up to task. It was exactly, and the same thing happened in Stockholm. They elect they, they had a vote on it. Let's trial it for six months. They did it. It worked. They voted again. They kept it. Yeah. Now we've recently seen the uh, ULEV, um debacle <laughs> in London, where uh, uh, the mayor of London tried to bring in, uh, you know, has brought in that like low emission zone, but ended up uh, take paying a, a political price for it personally and also his his party. Um, and it's also had a very unfortunate knock-on effects into all sorts of other other policy areas. But uh, it, it does raise the question of. The of the the inequalities of how a a charge like that does affect the people who are least able to afford it. At least that that's the argument that was made. So, what, what do you think of that? And there is there's an inequality there. It is the older vehicles that are being charged now for going into London. So obviously, if you have more money, you buy a new van or buy a new car, or whatever it is, and then you could avoid that charge. Um, I know that there were grants put out as part of ULES in London to to, to specifically target those types of people that need the, the support, more of that needs to be done. Um, I think it needs to be sold better as well. When you look at the figures in London, was it petrol cars that were built after, before 2010? Those were the ones that weren't allowed in uh, without a charge. And there's very few of those, the same with the diesel cars. So it's the communications of the policies, I think are really, really important. Um, uh, and like you're going to break eggs when you're doing this. Um, there's no way that you can't. Um, but I think as much debate, you know, healthy debate that we have around it, also building on consensus um, and discussion, I think all of those are vital. Um, and we need to do those quickly. Um, I was asked recently in another interview, someone asked me, you know, what do we do really well in Ireland in transport? And uh, my quip was, you know, we write reports. We write lots of reports. You could probably, you know, pave the way of Metro to from here to the airport with reports about how we're going to do it. Um, we need to build consensus, but we also need to build um, and, and build quickly. Yeah. And that's actually leads us to a really interesting point, which is um, a lot of the discussion is about it's, it's on the negative side, it's about taking something away. Well, instead, why don't we ever talk about the, the benefits? Like, as I was just mentioning in London, life is better there with a congested charge. Uh, like, life is better without the pollution. Like, if you can, you can breathe fresher air, if you can like, have a better, better transport system. How do we get the narrative from the, the taking away of our freedom to a, no, actually, here's all the benefits, and actually, there's, there, there are additional freedoms attached to not having a car. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we need to, as I said, I don't think we'll win the climate debate by saying, you know, talking about CO2 and methane and all those other types of things. I think we do it by showing people that it's going to be better. Um, the, the, the issue is it's the two polar opposites that get all the airtime in these debates um, and that results in stagnation and, 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 and nothing happening. Um, but we can do it better. We can lead by example. I think we should be piloting things more. We, I think we should be going, look, um, like say for example in Dublin, if I were asked what I would do in the morning, it wouldn't be build Metro, hopefully that's going to happen. It would be build one of the Bus Connects corridors, show the people what it's going to look like. Every part of the city then will get on board. Every part of the country will get on board. When you demonstrate something that's positive, then people will want it. Um, another example would be the bike share schemes. When bike shares came into Dublin, the Dublin bikes, everybody, this is not going to work, this is going to be an absolute disaster, they're going to end up in Liffey, nothing could be further from the truth, it's one of the most successful schemes in the world. They're in almost every, they're in all, every Irish city and town, they're all looking at these things. Um, so it is by piloting um, um, certain aspects, there's certain big things that you can't pilot, you can't pilot the metro, we can't see how it would work for a few days and then get rid of it, we just need to build it. Um, it is very expensive, um, it's a massively expensive project right now, um, it's only going to get more expensive. Um, is, is the way to look at it. But I do think by bringing people, you can bring people with you by telling them better stories about what can happen and learning from international experience as well. Um, that's a key way of being able to say, well, look, I, I was at a conference where there was, um, the, she was the Minister for Transport Infrastructure in, in uh, Brussels. 
And she was telling us about the, the, the journey that city went on to take cars out of the city centre, to put more space there for parks, for children, for all the things, you know, us as humans we hold dear um, and give them the priority as opposed to a car. And those types of stories, I think, are very, um, very powerful. And I think if you also target people's emotions around them and target people's, um, you know, the, the well-being of everybody, everybody, you know, we saw during COVID, everybody pulled together and it's, we're in one of those moments again um, where we all need to pull together for this greater good. And it is by demonstration uh, and, 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 and storytelling, I, I think, is one of the most powerful ways in which we can do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah you mentioned earlier on um, that cars would naturally leave cities because congestion would be bad. Now, that to me seems like, well, if cars leave cities because congestion is bad, it just leaves more space for cars so the cars come back. <laughs> is that is that one of those um, you know rebound effects? It would be a rebound effect. Um, I think you occupy that space as soon as you possibly can once the cars start to, to, to move away. I think, say in Dublin, there's a couple of routes that are really important and they are now more or less fully public transport and walking and cycling. Um, and it's very difficult to get through the city with a car now, so it just becomes a place that you just don't want to be in a car. And I suppose that's what's happening. At some point, we probably will need a congestion charge. Um, you know, in between the canals, transport's quite good and emissions aren't as bad. It's outside of the canals to the M50. That's where lots of emissions happen. Um, and how we tackle that, we won't be able to tackle that without a stick. Okay, fair enough. And could you, just now that we're on the subject, uh, could you explain the concept of the rebound effect and how it results in awful, in often um, unintended or unintuitive consequences? You, you mentioned it there about, you know, if you free up space, then other people will go, well, actually, now it's quicker to go by car, I'll do that. Um, and you see that happening. So within transport modelling, we would see that happening. We, we assume people take the modes of transport by the, the shortest time possible. The models also assume people are rational, which is a big assumption. Um, um, but then if the travel time becomes less and people kind of change between routes, then they will go to the one that um, has the, uh, the, the shortest path. The shortest path then could be because of a congestion charge, because of, because of driving, um, or because you're saving time, um, could, could be because of driving. But then the income effect is that those people will tend to be the people that are more, um, that have higher incomes that will be able to pay for these, these, these types of charges. We're talking about kind of cycling and trying to encourage people to be doing kind of more positive, um, healthy lifestyle. Now, that's, cycling has got a very particular, in Ireland particularly, and has got a very, without wanting to overuse the word particular, but a very particular um, type of person. A type of person who does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the mammal, <laughs> you know, the middle-aged man in Lycra. Yeah. <laughs> it tends, tends to be a bit, of a bit of a stereotype. How do we build a cycling system, a cycling network that is more inclusive, uh, that's more, because I was in Copenhagen recently, and Everybody cycles. Everybody. It's in Amsterdam. I spent, spent some time in Amsterdam a few years back. Everybody cycles. Entirely inclusive, entirely different mentality about it than, than there is here. It didn't happen overnight. That's the thing. And it, it, it happened through education. It happened through engineering. It happened through enforcement. Um, we can't get to Amsterdam levels or Copenhagen levels of cycling overnight. Um, it needs to be it needs to be educated. We need to be working with our kids. We need to be able to show them that places are safe to cycle allowing the parents to feel confident that their kids are safe while they're out cycling, that they're not um, they're not stuck behind a diesel bus or a diesel truck inhaling lots of, you know, very bad things for them. Um, all of those kind of things need to happen. It's 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 great to look at Copenhagen and, and, and Amsterdam, but like cycling in Dublin is increasing. It's increasing slowly. But um, recently someone said to me that, you know, Dublin is the, the Amsterdam of pedestrians. So there's about 20, 30 percent of people, all their trips are taken by foot. Um, so that's another thing that, 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 that we definitely do very well. And not only in Dublin, all of our cities, there, there's high levels of pedestrians. Um, the cycling one is going to take time. Um, but and it's not again, it's not the silver bullet that we think it is. We've done research on it to show that if we had Amsterdam levels of cycling in Dublin, the emission savings, they're not massive. Um, what tends to happen is that people will leave public transport and go to the bike. Um, and when cycling gets worse, they leave the bike and go to public transport. It's the people in the cars and it's how you get to them is, is the key thing. The 30 percent 
of other modes that are used in the country, they tend to fluctuate between public transport, walking and cycling, and the car tends to stay pretty steady where it is. Very good, yeah. So, yeah, I think we've talked about things on two extremes. Um, but maybe, could you give an example of what you think would be the best kind of, you know, bang for your buck, one pol policy change, change you could make, and then maybe the on the opposite end, the one that might you might think would be overly emphasised as a solution? Um, so the one, the one policy that bang for your buck is, and it's going to be boring, it is bus transport for this country, by assuming a 2030 timeline, that's what, that's what we require, that's what the investment is, is needed in. Um, there's, I think, 11 routes currently under consideration by onboard Planola, and they've been there quite some time. I think, well, maybe the one quick win would be to <laughs> expedite everything that's in the board plan all and get things happening a lot quicker. Um, that could be the quick win. Um, but I do think bus services and better bus services, I, I think, are, are, are fantastic. There's an example in Belfast of the Glider, um, which is a, a bus that looks like a tram. I think that could have a lot of impact. Great pilot, bring it to a city. Um, I, I think that could have a, a lot of impact. Um, and the other question was, what is the... Yeah, what is, uh, is, is overemphasized? Like, what, what's better on paper than, than in reality? What's better on paper than reality? Well, like electric cars will reduce our emissions substantially, and there's no question about that. Um, they do nothing to change the transport system. An electric car will still delay a bus. Electric car, you know, if it's in an, an accident, has equally likely probability of hurting somebody, causing a fatality. It's, it causes the same amount of congestion. Um, we put far too much effort, we put, we're putting far too much in that one basket in this country. About, and it's not about, I know, it's 58% of all of our emissions that we have, our emissions plan, 58% of the reduction is gonna come from electric cars. Um, I know a lot of people think that we will get to this one million figure, I really don't see how we're going to do it without creating more cars. Um, on average, we sell about 100,000 cars in this country a year. I looked at the stats this morning so far in October. We've sold 70,000 SUVs in this country. Um, and then there's all of the other cars that we're continuing to sell. Um, cars don't solve, they solve an immediate problem. They solve an, imme yeah, they solve an immediate problem, electric cars. Um, but in cities and urban areas, I think, you know, they're not the solution. More space to make more people together move faster is the thing to do. Okay. And just and then to taking the buses as stars, um, would you see any bus as a good bus or would you prefer it to be electric, to be hydrogen, to be and like what type of fuels would you would you kind of champion if that was? Um, electric buses are, are, are the best, but um, again, back to all the reports we write and perfection being the enemy of the good. Um, any bus is better than, you know, 10, 20 cars rattling around. Um, ideally, they would be electric, um, and there are a number of electric buses here now in Dublin. There's plans for them all, all, in all the regional cities. Um, th that helps with the climate, but it, to go back to an earlier point, it really helps with air quality, um, um, because these buses are big, like big diesel buses create lots of, you know, toxins that go into the atmosphere. And if we look at Dublin, when we model, emissions in Dublin, we see high concentrations around all of the bus routes. Um, and that's just a product of buses being operated by diesel. Interesting, yeah, okay. Um, and then taking on the, uh, the, the EV side, um, they're very interesting what you say, like so much of the policy is then focused in, focused in on this one, one particular tool. What extra can nuance would you like field into that, that debate, that discussion? I have lots of ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, I think from a just transition and from that perspective, I think we should be targeting electric cars into rural parts of Ireland uh, with much higher grants um, for people that drive much longer distances um, than, and, and use petrol and diesel cars. That's the first point um, I think we should do. We need to incentivize the second-hand car market. Not everybody can afford an electric car. Um, we need to incentivize that as much as, as we possibly can. But then the other thing is we need to massively scale up our, our charging network. Um, we've got about 3,000 charging points now across the country. Um, Arup and other consultants have done work to show that we probably need maybe six figures. Um, the pace at which those are coming out it, it, it is quite slow. Um, so those would be some of the kind of things I would also try to, I would take away or maybe penalise um, 
the big SUVs, the big electric SUVs the, that are purely electric, um, that use way more lithium, and they're carting around higher carcass, car carcasses um, and using more energy because of that. Uh, lithium is a finite so resource, um, so let's not forget that. Um, I'd like to see more emphasis put on smaller, lighter vehicles, and in our cities, shared smaller, lighter vehicles. Okay, and there's been arguments around kind of EV grant schemes as being um, increasing inequalities. They do. Um, uh, I've got the, the research that proves it. I mean, the, the majority of EVs that are sold in Ireland happen in Dublin and Cork, um, and there's a massive correlation between, between income levels in areas and EV ownership. Uh, EVs tend to be the second car that people have um, uh, in these areas, so it's the car that, that makes them feel better about running around town in a vehicle and then they keep the petrol or diesel for the, the longer trips. Um, I think as well, if you gave people information on the exact cost of every trip that they're taking, petrol, electric, and not, even for me, um, to say, well, you know, that trip to the shop probably cost you 30 euro when you take the lifespan of the, um, of the car in, in, into account. That kind of thing then would, I hope, would maybe get people to think about really do we need to own one of these vehicles and could we perhaps share vehicles. Um, a car spends about 95% of its time parked. So the carbon or the climate benefit is 5% of the time. If a wind turbine was only blowing 5% of the time, we would stop building them. Um, and I suppose if we could sweat the asset a bit more, um, like we've just published some research on taxis and they probably travel about four times as much as a regular car. If they were all electric, there's a huge dividend in terms of climate. So the things that move more give them the incentives, um, uh, I think, and in the cities make them smaller and lighter. Yeah, I'm surprised only four times more a taxi. Yep, that was research that we did on the national fleet. Right, so that's like 20% from five to 20. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So um, the other kind of big story in um, in vehicles is is our AVs, autonomous vehicles. You've done and you've done done a lot of a lot of work on this. Um, what are the main kind of trends and attitudes towards AVs? They seem to have slipped a little bit off the headlines recently. They have, um, perhaps for a few reasons. Yeah, I, I have done research on them uh, before. I don't have any active projects on them at the moment. Um, Proving, did, proving the point slightly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and I suppose we did modelling on it and we modelled the M50 to show, you know, what are the benefits of autonomous vehicles. We're told that they are safety and travel time and all of these other kind of wonderful benefits. Um, but every car needs to be autonomous and connected to, to achieve those benefits. Um, so that's difficult. Um, one of the things I a colleague of mine in Australia says about autonomous vehicles is that they're a solution looking for a problem. Um, and I kind of, all, kind of feel on a, maybe a human on a fundamental level, if car companies were putting, or if we were putting the resources that have been put into making it easier to drive a car into improving buses, walking and cycling, we would get a much higher dividend in terms of climate. Um, I think they're probably here to stay. Um, there's huge issues around them, around the, the, the legal elements of it, the economics, who's responsible. And I'm just, I, I kind of scratch my head as to wonder why are we talking about all of this about making it easier to drive when, you know, the reason we're, we are where we are is because of all the cars we have. Um, and it's the same with electric cars. Why would we, why are we, we have a, a chance now to swap out, you know, one technology for another. And we're not really improving. Um, it's electric, it's cleaner, but the fundamentals of it are the same. Um, and we'll still have congestion and all those other things. And I think the same with autonomous vehicles. There's elements of autonomous vehicles, some of them not the high level, you know, no steering wheel pods, but making cars safer um, uh, with all these sensors, that's great stuff because we do need, we have a safety problem in this country. Um, and the, there, it's predicted that this year will be the worst year in 15 in terms of road deaths. So we do need to have better technologies in our cars, but fully autonomous, go in, lie down, drive around, put your kids in it, send them to school. I'm not sure um, that's where we want to be basing a lot of our, 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 of our, of our research and our efforts. Well, it would certainly improve the utilisation problem. It would, it would. You could have much fewer cars and that, that has been modelled. Um, but it's still, 
I, I still don't think you'd be able to move the volume of people in big cities um, uh, that is required. Perhaps in, 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 in rural parts of the world it, it could happen. Um, I do think that the autonomous um, buses that they've been trialling in China, and now there's a trial happening I think in Perth in Australia, um, where they're guided buses that are fully autonomous and there's en route charging for these electric buses, that's the type of autonomy I'd like to see and that type of technology I think is fantastic and the quicker we can expedite that the better. But if we have, let's say that we do have all of these electric cars and people will then, you know, if you're not driving, you're not concentrating, people will accept a longer commute and then things like more urban sprawl will happen and hollowing out of city centres. So I just think there's lots of unintended consequences, I think, with them and I'm sceptical. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. Okay, well, yeah, changing tack slightly. Um, the whole issue of transport, so we kind of touched on it gently before, well, it's very combustible and it's very politically, and like, it's something that it should be, it should be pretty dry, frankly, <laughs> but you end up getting, you know, if you have gilets jaunes, you end up getting uh, just up oil, like, you know, direct, direct protests. And it, like, it's pretty wonky, like, stuff. This is not, this, this isn't, um, you know, stuff that you would think would naturally fire the passions. But it does. And why? Why do you think it does? Because we do it all every day. Everybody does. And uh, and that's why people are passionate about it. That's why people always want to talk about transport. And that's why everyone has a solution. Which is uh, why you're on the radio so often. Which is why I'm in the media a bit. Um, and, uh, and, and there are lots of really good ideas out there, but it is divisive. And it is, you know, if somebody says, oh, you shouldn't be driving your SUV, uh, or you shouldn't have a diesel car or whatever it is, you know, it's almost like a personal attack. And even when I'm talking to people fairly high up in different parts, the first thing they think about is their own commute. How will this impact upon me? Now, if I were doing this, how would I do it? And you get, what about her? What about this? What about that? And like I've been on the radio before talking about, you know, removing cars from the city centre and then, you know, you get comments from people kind of, you know, oh, you expect everybody to walk to the maternity hospital or you expect, you know, people with, that need, need cars for wheelchair access. You expect that. No, it's not that. And it's not the one solution will fit all. As I said, beware the silver bullet. Um, it is just so divisive. And then one of the things that struck me recently was um, we've done this work in Dublin to see about removing cars from the city. And I think it was 40% of cars that are circulating around the city have an end point in the city. The rest are just moving through. And there was a politician on the north side of the city and he started to vocalise this and he was saying, why are my constituents breathing in all of your pollutants and you're just travelling through? What gives you the right to do that? And that was a really, really good point. And it's debates like that that are happening quite a bit. And it's... It's the people that think that, that they, they need to make a trip for the one-off once a year that they're going to do it that take up a lot of the airtime. Um, whereas, like, say, for example, in Dublin or in Cork or any of the other cities, the citizens live in the city and they are the they should be the ones that, you know, that have a, a much bigger say. And um, I spoke, was it last year? It was last summer at the, we, the Citizens' Assembly here in Dublin about the directly elected Dublin mayor. And I think that's a fantastic idea. If you look at any of the cities around the world that are doing amazing things, Barcelona, London, Paris, they're all doing amazing things. They have amazing directly elected mayors. And that means then the person that's enacting these policies, taking away parking, promoting cycling, has a mandate. Um, for good or for bad, whatever, whatever mandate they have, they have a mandate, as opposed to somebody that was appointed through you know, the, the public service and it's a civil servant, and he or she doesn't have that mandate. Um, I think that's one of the things that we're missing. And it was disappointing there. Well, first of all, it's disappointing. Limerick voted for this back in 2020 and they still don't have a mayor in place. Um, but there was also plebiscites in Waterford and Cork and they rejected it. Um, I'm hoping now that the report from the assembly that has gone to government will result in Dublin doing something on it because I think it could be transformational for, for the city. And I don't necessarily think that person should have authority over building Metro and all of these other big projects um, because, or the bus systems because there would be duplication. The mayor would be the mayor of Dublin, but the bus network impacts upon the whole region. I think the mayor could use the current powers the council have better in terms of road space, cycling space, promoting green spaces within the city. I think the mayor could do, use those powers with a mandate much better. 
as you can see in, in, in Paris is, is a fantastic example at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, brilliant idea. I suppose, yeah, surprised that um, a city would reject that type of autonomy. It seems to be a natural thing for the people in a city to put their hand up and say, yes, we would like to be electron officials. It was surprising, especially for Cork. Um, I'm from Waterford originally. Um, uh, I was surprised. Um, and even the vote in Limerick was marginal that, 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 that it got passed by. What were the arguments against out of interest? Oh, the arguments against were, you know, they weren't sure what powers they were going to get um, and that it would be that it would be just tokenistic. Those were kind of some of the arguments against it. Um, uh, but thankfully, as I said, in Limerick it got through. But again, October 23, we don't have um, a directly elected mayor. I think it is going to happen in the local elections in May next year. Uh, but those types of delays and lags, we're, we're, we're so past that right now. Um, we need to get these things happening much quicker. Mm, absolutely. And how's the how the conversations within kind of academic circles about the the polarization and politicalization of these these issues? Um, I, I suppose there's a grouping here within Trinity um, and from right across the campus and their great sounding board and we talk all of the time um, and I think we kind of oscillate from being really scared um, in terms of what we see happening to being very optimistic in some cases. Um, it oscillates. I think there's a lot of people that support each other through kind of like if you're being, going out there banging the table that you start to support people that are doing that or you send an email if you, you know if a colleague has been on the radio and they're saying something whether it's about climate or whatever you send them you know something positive and say well done that was brilliant can we meet for coffee that type of thing. Um, there is a fear that you know kind of some of the ideas around transport and around other areas of climate that they have become some, po some polarised and some of the narratives, even around the 15-minute city, some of the narratives that are creeping in there, that it's the UN trying to enclose you within a 15-minute of your house, those types of things are scary. And I suppose that's why us as academics, we have a job to educate people. We have a job to, to show the research, to show the benefits, and to, to communicate that better as well, and to, to get out there um, and, and do that. Um, we're staring at the abyss, as I said earlier, and, uh, and not to be so negative, but, you know, it's what did you do, where were you when all of this was happening kind of conversation I suppose at the moment and we need to do everything and I was asked again recently, um, oh, sorry it was back earlier in the year, someone said to me uh, what do we need to do in transport and I quoted the, the movie that had won the best picture at the Oscars, everything everywhere all at once is what we need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fully agree and, in, and that's the same in <coughs> so many areas of the whole, the whole climate and biodiversity crisis we're going through right now. Um, but kind of broadening it out a little bit to you know, somewhere, to everywhere, somewhere else. Um, you have um, done some research with colleagues in Brazil. Yes. Yep. Um, how has that research informed your attitudes and in relation to decarbonisation of transport generally? Um, that was a fantastic piece of research that we did in rural um, um, Brazil. And one of the first things I found out was that the problems that we have in Ireland are in terms of how the, the mechanisms of getting things working in transport were the same um, as they were in Brazil. And the, the PhD student that worked on it, uh, Rodolfo, he was, he was from that part of Brazil. Um, the key thing I suppose that it, that it showed me was that was data is so important um, when it comes to informing policy. Uh, I say to my students, if you don't count it, it doesn't count. Um, so if you're building something, doing something different, energy, transport, water, whatever it is, you need to be able to prove what you did was, was beneficial. Um, and we tried to do that in this project in Brazil and like basic things that we didn't have information on. One was where people lived and we were like, right, okay, we have to come up with a way of figuring out how where people live. And then we found out or we, we knew that in that part of Brazil, there was a huge um, uh, irrigation and water scheme where there were water systems put into every part of Brazil, or of that part of Brazil. And if there was a water system there, then we assumed there was houses there and there was people there. So we were able to link the two, prove it um, by using um, geospatial analysis and then show where the populations were. And then having that data then empowered us to be able to go right, how far away is somebody living in that part of Brazil from education, work uh, and healthcare? Um, and we looked at what happened before and after a, a motorway was put in to see what the impacts were on literacy, on, on infant mortality, all of these kind of things. Um, and it was, it was a really rewarding project. Um, and the, 
the PhD student of mine that worked there is, is back in Brazil. He's using that work. It was fed into the, the, the ministry that was in charge of transport to come up with better ways of, of, of planning for transport in, in Brazil and also other countries in the global south. Fantastic. And any insights from that that you've, you've taken back into your work here on campus? Um, the work that we will bring back here, I, I suppose there have been, you know, one, like I teach a module on it, or I teach classes on what we learned from, from that. Um, there were certain things, I suppose, the before and after studies, the kind of technical GIS analysis that we did, the, the, that kind of stuff has definitely informed some of my teaching and more of my research, and we've applied it to different parts of, of Ireland as well. And the same author that was on that research in Brazil was on an author, was authored on work that I did here in, in Ireland on rural transport. And you could see the, the similarities between the two. So it's, we definitely learn from each other. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. So if you could just ask one last question for, you know, just to, 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 to wrap up. Um, normally ask for a little bit of advice at the end. And in this, uh, in this case, could you give one piece of advice to kind of listeners out there? What's the one thing that they can do that can make the most impact? I suppose across all of climate is... Uh, no, no, just say in, uh, across transport. Across transport, I suppose the one thing that they could do is I suppose to, I suppose, consider the trips that are, that are being made. Um, if transport policies are being put in front of somebody, that they listen and they listen to see, look, what are the benefits, what are the, 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 the negative impacts of it for you? Because that's the first person that, that, that that's going to uh, be impacted upon by it and engage, engage, um, you know, proactively um, in transport policy development. Um, and I suppose the other thing is that we're doing this for a greater good and we're trying to make all of these changes to make our cities and everything else better and more clean, more healthy, all of these types of things. But it's also the, it's, I suppose it's the, the, the global climate crisis that we're in at the moment has never been more acute. And we've seen that even this week in Ireland flooding everywhere. Little impacts all start to snowball and make bigger impacts. And I think that the key thing that I would say to, to listeners is to to listen, engage and proactively engage and because it's going to impact upon all of us. Brilliant. OK, thank you very much. That was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.